Thanks for listening to the Guns on Pegs podcast. The Guns on Pegs podcast is brought to you by ITAP Group. We hope you enjoyed the show. Hello and welcome to the Guns on Pegs podcast. I am George Brown. And I'm Chris Horn. How are you doing? I'm good. We haven't had any like mega action since the last pod. Like in between the if if the in between the, the the last part of the one before that was normal then i'd be a very happy person i'm just a bit gutted it's not consistent well yeah and the other thing is obviously now the shooting season has ended properly ended so neither of us have been out doing anything particularly of import to mention so we haven't got an awful lot of uh, exciting stuff to chat about in this bit no, and you know how like the first weekend of February is like pigeon weekend, right? Yeah. And the syndicate's like, oh, come along, we'll get out of the pigeons, uh, roost shooting, all that sort of stuff. Obviously, the first weekend of February, when you've been out for most Sundays traveling to the next shoot, is just at home with the children, whether you like it or not. So the idea of them going <laughs> pigeon shooting on that Saturday was just never going to happen. Well, you know, I've decided that the season, or rather the year, shouldn't be broken up into four seasons. It should be three seasons. One of which is the shooting season. Another one is the uh, cricket and fishing season. And then there's this rather unfortunate bit between sort of, you know, the middle of February and let's face it, nobody really wants to go f- uh, play cricket in April. So we'll call it May. And I think that the name for that season should be the Ah Help season because it's all a bit grim. You mean you're not out in the chalk streams? That's that's prime, isn't I, it? I can't afford to be out on the for, on the chalk streams, <laughs> but but you can afford for three seasons of shooting. <laughs> well, I, I don't pay for my shooting, Chris, as you know. <laughs> you need to get better at doing invites on the chalk streams in May. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> okay, right. So, without further ado, then, shall we introduce our guest? We shall. So we've got a highly trained gunsmith with us today. So, so that means we've lined up all the questions that anyone in a gun shop would get really annoyed at us asking, and we've just saved them all for our guests. So I'm looking forward to that. He has 17 years of experience, formerly uh, at B Chaplin in Winchester. He then bought the business from the previous owners and now runs it purely as a gunsmith, uh, specialising in old English guns. Not just that, though. He's a competitive shotgun and rifle shot, winner of the Hurlingham Cup trophy in 2019. I definitely want to come back to that. Uh, he's 2-2 speed shooting champion, 2016, set 2017 and 2019. So he's seriously rapid. So stop feeding the chickens, put the washing pegs back in the basket so you can put your hands together and give a very warm welcome to Alex Smith. <laughs> well, so that's a cracking intro. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Just basically uh, read off the uh, read off the website, hey, which I must update because it's, uh, <laughs> it's um, yeah a little bit more years than that, but yeah, no expense spared in researching this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, 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 how, how many how many um, how many trophies did we miss? I'm not sure. It was the, it wasn't the trophies. It was the few more years of experience, and um, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, experience 17. I think it was 17 when I started. So I think I've probably got, um, 20 years of experience now. Yeah. I just need to update the website. So 20 years of experience, but no more trophies. Um, no more trophies that I, that I can recall. Um, not certainly none to talk of anyway. Right. Just quickly for everyone else's benefit. 
uh, and and me about ten minutes ago. The Hurlingham Cup. Talk us through it. Well, um, one of the oldest shooting trophies ever, I believe. When the Hurlingham Club in London um, used to shoot live pigeon, that was uh, one of the early trophies that they made in bits and pieces like that. So when it was live pigeon shooting, um, and I won it at AGL at King Grant and Lang, the shooting ground there, shooting um, Helice, or ZZ as they call it in the content, but Helice shooting. Um, which is the modern or alternative to live pigeon shooting. And everyone asks me, what is helice shooting? Well, actually, I describe it as the snitch from Harry Potter. It's, a, it's, it's quite literally a, a clay pigeon with wings coming out the side. And you have five boxes in front of you, just like the old pigeon days. And um, one would release at random. That the clay itself is, or helice is helicing, so it's uh, oscillating and um, varying in in direction. And one is released, and then it whizzes off in in any particular direction it likes. And you have to shoot it, separate the uh, two different halves, and have to land it within a certain circle, just like live pigeon shooting was back in the day. That's and epic. I've, I've seen videos. It looks so much fun. It really is. It is ridiculously addictive. It's ridiculously addictive um, for so many ways. One minute you're on it, the next minute you're not. And um, there's some there's some people that are very good at it. Um, Marcus Hidden from Express Cartridges, he's uh, he's very very good at it. Um, and there's a few other people. Chris Potter um, is a veteran at it. But let me go back to the Hurlingham Cup shot with a side by side as well. Um, that uh, I I don't know if that's part of the uh, the actual uh, rules, but always was in the Hurlingham days as well. Anyway, but yeah, very good. Yeah, you know, I was pleased about that. Uh, and and two two speed shooting. Yeah, I'm quite proud of that one. Uh, I was I, that was my first first bit of actual shooting I ever did was with two two target target shooting target rifle shooting. Um, and this particular the speed shooting uh, we call the tile shoot. And quite literally, it is a um, a polo-sized target at 25 yards with a single-shot rifle, martini action, or a bolt action, but I use a martini because it's quicker, just like the one on, used on Zulu. So a martini, you load it mm. in the top and move the lever, and it ejects. So this is with a martini, 0.22, open sights, peep, peep sights, 25 yards, and you have to shoot them as quick as possible. And I think I got it down to about 14.7 seconds or something. So, yeah, five, five, five targets. Sorry. Yeah. You, you must be deadly on squirrels out the window. Yeah. <laughs> as long as the window's open, I can hit them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, no, I was quite pleased with that one because it's quite, it's quite a big, prestigious shoot um, at home. And we, uh, we, yeah, I don't know whether it's done throughout the country, but uh, down in the south of England, there's also other shoots as well that are, are similar. But this one is actually because you see the, the target, actually the polo break, it's quite good to actually watch. Yeah, it's fast and furious. You can't afford to miss or fumble. Right. Well, so Alex, the way we like to start these podcasts off is just to uh, wet everyone's whistle and make sure everybody's in the the right frame of mind for a bit of a chat. So uh, we kick off with a segment called What's That You're Drinking? So what have you got in your hand for this recording? Well, um, as it goes, uh, February being a short month, 
Um, I choose uh, not to drink at all in February. No alcohol has touched my lips in February due to, one, it being a short month, and two, I drink so much throughout the season. <laughs> I think right now I've just <laughs> got a coffee in my hand. Well, in, in my right hand, I've got a coffee. In my left hand, I've got a um, Partagas D4 as uh, my usual everyday smoke. Oh, lovely. I really like my cigars, by the way, as you can oh, well. tell by that reaction. Hint, 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 nudge, nudge, I think that was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. After, this, uh, after this, I'll send you this new website I found where um, the uh, they come through in happy birthday wrapping paper with your fake cousin's name all over it with something else written on the customs label, and it's an absolute winner. I um I t- I tend to get mine from whoever's doing them the cheapest at the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, well th- this will be that. <laughs> That's the idea. <laughs> I like a bit of tax fraud on a podcast on a Monday afternoon. Very good. I think they describe it as tax evasion. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Either way, illegal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's not my fault this business, this website wanted to accept my money. What was really interesting about the website is when you paid, it said you didn't actually pay. It sent you a link and it said you'll get a request for for payment in the next 24 hours. You then sent some money to this random place and hope your cigars would turn out. And I thought, what the hell? It's such a good deal. I might as well try it. And they turned up. I genuinely had accepted losing the money. Shop around is all I'd say on Google. Great. So, Chris, what have you got then? I've got the latest in my series of... um, Drinks for less than desirable pod timings. Uh, this being a Monday afternoon, I'm on an alcohol-free Heineken. Uh, so on another, I think it must have been a Monday pod, I had uh, an alcohol-free Guinness, which, by the way, is top of the alcohol-free beer charts, in my opinion. Uh, I did meet someone, Ian Bell, Basque. He's not a fan. Anyway, with him the other day over a also Monday lunch, I had a uh, alcohol-free Peroni. Not bad, actually. I'll give that one. Alcohol-free Heineken, not so much. N- not a massive fan of this one, but there you go. So I'm, I'm up to three on my alcohol-free, alcohol-free beer ratings. They have got so much better than years ago, though. It's, it's a bit like the old steel cartridge debate. Oh, no, I used them back in 86, and they were crap. This is definitely the same game. They got a lot better. But, um, yeah, this one, I definitely the Guinness is the winner. Interesting. George, what are you on? So uh, what have I got? Um, I think this is the first time ever all three people on the podcast have been alcohol-free. I was at uh, my sister's engagement party over the weekend, and I confess I'm still slightly feeling the effects of it. And as you say, it's a Monday afternoon and we've got a busy week ahead. So I have got a very nice cup of tea um, which is uh, Fortnum Mason's Royal Blend Loose Leaf Tea. And um, Hold on. That's the second pod in a row that that's made an, exp- uh, uh, an appearance. Oh, yes. Yes, that's right. That specific blend of tea. Is that something you got in a Christmas cracker from your mother-in-law or something that you just feel like you have to be promoting and getting rid of? <laughs> Do you know, it's funny you should say that. My mum started giving me uh, Fortnum Mason's tea, or well, no, I should say, Father Christmas started giving me Fortnum and Mason's tea at Christmas <laughs> when I was about 15 or 16. And every year since then, I have received at least one tin of Fortnum and Mason's Royal Blend. And there was a rather tricky period. Both my wife and I 
gave each other Fortnum Mason's Royal Blend and various other blends at the same time. And we had an entire shelf in our cupboard given over to uh, various boxes and tins of Fortnum and bags of Royal <laughs> Mason's tea. So, so, I mean, of of all the tricky periods one goes through in life, that has to be up there with one of the most trickiest moments. I must <laughs> it was say. very challenging. You didn't know what to have. Uh, we had Jubilee <laughs> and, um, and and all sorts. Um, and and then um, you know you try a new blend, and um, then it turns out it was a special occasion one, and they've discontinued it. So, um, but the the royal the royal blend is um, is a mainstay. No need for BBC News. We've got all the big issues on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> quite so, quite so. It seems like we're all at a similar age, and it's the worst thing you can say to someone. Yeah, I really like that. And then it's forever on, isn't it? That's all you ever get. Yeah. You said you liked it last year. You know. <laughs> right. So an alcohol-free podcast. It, w- it won't make any difference, the amount of rubbish I spout. So crack. This episode of the Guns on Pegs podcast is sponsored by Basque, the British Association for Shooting and Conservation. Now, Chris, we often talk on this podcast about some of the pressures that shooting faces, whether that's shooting social license or political interference or misinformation in the media. Indeed. And this is one of those ads that doesn't really need to be an ad in order for us to say this. Basque is right at the front line of tackling these problems, but they need your support. Simply put, your community needs your help. But how can I help? I hear our listeners asking. <laughs> Easy one, George. The simplest and easiest way that you can help is by joining Basque and becoming part of an unrivaled and long-standing community of over 145,000 members who share a passion for the future of sustainable shooting and conservation. Basque members enjoy a wide range of benefits and offers, including public liability insurance cover, something that every game shot should have, unlimited access to Basque's specialist firearms team, plus discounts on a wide range of products, including shooting apparel, even vehicles and complimentary admission to a range of exciting events across the UK, including the Game Fair. We are both big supporters of Basque and the work they do for shooting, aren't we, Chris? And we firmly believe that anyone who loves shooting should be a member. To become a Basque member, visit basque.org.uk slash join. Basque is registered and authorised by the Financial Conduct Authority. Back to the podcast. Gone. Okay, good. Well, that's perfect. Um, so, Alex, what we do now is we turn to our post bag uh, with a segment called Whose Bird Is It Anyway? And it's when we ask our listeners to send in their shooting quandaries and queries and dilemmas, and we do our level best to help them out. This episode submission comes from somebody who uh, emailed pod at gunsonpegs.com, who I've decided to call Miss Havisham. We keep all our correspondents anonymous so that they are protected from the consequences of emailing in. So um, Miss Havisham has written with the subject line, The Missing Millionaire, and it goes on. My quandary is one that begins in February, however, doesn't fully present itself until after the first frost, much like a ripe slow. You can guarantee this issue will be something we have to deal with every autumn. As the season comes to an end, our diary begins to flutter. Plans for next season are rapidly beginning to occupy the pages. We have a great roving team who have shot together for many years. This team includes a very dear friend of ours who just so happens to be a bit of a tycoon. 
He's the heart and soul of the party on a shoot day and a bottle of King's Ginger is never too far away. He very much enjoys his shooting and when I look at his shoot diary, it makes me water at the mouth with envy. Needless to say, he's top of our list when putting together our team of eight. The WhatsApp messages are sent out and without hesitation, a tiny thumb appears in the group and a bank transfer notice pings in the background. The day is booked. Fast forward a few months, summer's becoming a memory of sim days in shirt sleeves and crisp pints of cider. The weather's now on the turn and anticipation for our day is running high. The mothballed WhatsApp group for this particular day begins to come back to life with travel arrangements and the jostling of who's rooming with who at the shoot's local pub. Then, as sure as anything, the message we've been waiting for. Ping. Lads, is there anyone who might be able to fill my peg? Silence as the other seven members read. Ping. I've double booked myself. Silly me. Ping. If you can't fill the peg, I can send someone in my place. With little more than 48 hours before the day, we're usually unable to fill the peg and have to result in a guest shooting as part of our tight-knit team. This often becomes a roll of the dice. We end up shooting one with one of his friends from some far-flung corner of Britain who sometimes doesn't get our etiquette or humour. It puts a bit of a downer on the day. We've mentioned to him that he's always missed on our days and we don't want to complain about his choice in friends. What are we to do? Simply not inviting him doesn't seem an option and having a standby for his diary mishaps also seems unfair to whoever is waiting in the wings. We would love to get your advice on this. Oh my God, I can't wait to go, but... Our guest is going first. <laughs> well, um, being quite a traditionalist, that just seems to be quite bad form, doesn't it? Really, in yep. the fact that even though he's a, a you know a paying an inverted guest, you've asked him to join uh, rather than have someone yep. send in his place. Now, if he was, you know, possibly send his son or his daughter, of course, um, or even his wife, then. Uh, that might be more sort of, you know, forthcoming, but but replacing him with one of his chums is not really, yeah, no, bad form, bad form. So what should he do? Just accept well, the loss and he just loses the space he still has to pay? Yeah, I think, yeah, 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 absolutely. It's his fault he's double booked. He should have written it in his diary. Yes, it's an expensive mistake to make, but it's just, uh, well, I'm sure we've all made the mistakes and I have indeed double booked. And and I'm sure we're all aware that you, you accept your first invitation, of course. Yes. Even if your second invitation is with the king, you always accept the first one. <laughs> we can we can have a conversation in a minute about when that rule becomes acceptable that it's not the rule anymore. What what has to be the case? I don't think it's ever <laughs> acceptable, Chris. But you you were desperate to come in on this, though, Chris. So so tell me. I'm glad Alex has, has said what he said. Uh, he's absolutely right. I think there is only one answer to this, which is uh, really sorry, chaps. I've I've whatever. I've double booked myself. I won't be there. Enjoy my peg. Send me a photo. That is the only answer he can give. Yes, but it. But do you not think it sounds like the guys actually kind of want him to be there on the day? It's not so much necessarily yeah, no, about the filling of the peg. So how do they? How do they? How do they try and make it so that the bloke actually turns up? Which I think is what they'd really like. Well, well, exactly. So, so, the, so the, the the specific answer to his question is the one that Alex and I have said. However, you're absolutely right that what they want to take this back to. How do we get this guy stop double booking himself? Which obviously is not something you do two or three times a year that's just a better offer and that's where this is going surely yeah, I mean, are we in agreement that that's it, what's happening it, here well yeah is he just wildly disorganized in every aspect of his life 
uh, like does he just need some like a poke uh, a month or so before don't forget you're coming on this day with us or is it is there something else going on is it the the better invitation syndrome well the fact that they've one of the group has messaged in the pod this is clearly not the first second or even maybe third time that this has happened so <laughs> you'd hope that on that basis they are sending messages so the the bit that i think they've got wrong is when he mentioned the mothballed whatsapp group that needs to stay alive yeah otherwise otherwise he's definitely forgetting isn't he i mean if i if i can bring something to attention this is this is the, the modern world with whatsapps imagine back in the day when you received a letter through the post inviting you um you know the, the, the whatsapps are there I, it might come down to actually three strikes and you're out why are you joining us, mate? Yeah, you're a great. Yeah, you're a lousy shot. So there's more, more, more game for us. But actually, if you're not going to turn up, then um, yeah, yeah, yeah. WhatsApps are there. It's great. No, he's out. He's out. I wonder back in like 1920, how many people didn't turn up on shoot days, and you just never knew until you saw them like two months later. But <laughs> what happened? <laughs> yeah. Well, and conversely, you know, the the slightly forgetful host who's sort of forgotten how many people he's invited and then, you know, you pitch you up on the day the and they go, oh, Christ, I wasn't expecting you. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been hilarious. I, I've been lucky enough to be, be on a shoot or unlucky, but I've been on a shoot and uh, on, a, on a day where someone has forgotten to turn up. And admittedly, it's only a little farm shoot, but it's still a shoot and it's still a day out. And if they've neglected to turn out, well... His loss or their loss. I think I've told this story on a pod before. George will correct me. But um, <laughs> my dad my dad was on a day where um, they shot the first drive, or they were shooting the first drive, and halfway through the first drive, someone rocks up and stands on the end of the line, uh, starts shooting away. He's like stood himself on sort of peg 10 equivalent, right? And the, the, the wind's going that way. He shoots quite a few gets to the end of the drive, collects his birds, puts his gun over his shoulder, walks towards the other guns to say hello to everyone and gets <laughs> approaches them and goes, oh, shit, I'm on the wrong shoot. <laughs> he, was, he was expecting to be on a different shoot. Not only late, but late on the wrong shoot is um, a double whammy, <laughs> so he, isn't it? So he shot half a drive of someone else's shoot and then buggers off to go and find his friends. So do do we think they need to have a sort of intervention with this chap though? Do they need to say, listen, like we want you to be there, but it's kind of it kind of sucks having your mates turn up instead? Or do they just need to be keeping that WhatsApp group alive between February and and October so that he doesn't forget, so it doesn't slip his mind, so that he's you know, keeping all that excitement alive? I've got an idea. Right. What they do, they keep inviting him because when he does turn up, he's good fun, yeah? They say to him, if you can't turn up, you lose the peg. They, they form a separate WhatsApp group with the, with the whole team apart from him, and they call it the Lucky Sons and Daughters group. They draw out of the hat, when he can't come, which one of you is getting the call up? And one of the sons or daughters of the rest of the group fills the space because they know it's going to happen. There you go. Good idea. Cracking. That's a very And then it solution. gives the young an opportunity. Yeah, fantastic. And they fill its place. Like it. And then the sons and daughters, the rest of the group, will be his best mate, and they'll never realise why they're so friendly to him. <laughs> <laughs> they'll all be sending him spurious invitations to go and shoot at very prestigious shoots. That's right. Ah, yeah. Now you're yeah. getting clever. That... <laughs> <laughs> you won't believe yeah, it. A 400 good. bird day has just popped up on the 
29th of October. <laughs> Love you to come as my guest. Knowing full well that he's been invited <laughs> elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they should just create fake LinkedIn profiles of people that could be in his industry and then send out random invites to <laughs> from this person. Very good, very good. Yeah, brilliant. I like it. <laughs> right, well, a rare occasion, a rare example of good advice on the podcast. Um, I think we've solved that one. Oh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> right. We've got an unpopular opinion. Oh, no, hold on. Uh, Alex, uh, so basically you would have heard at the start George named the person. If you don't ask George the uh, the reason behind the name, he gets very upset. So, George, how come Miss Miss Havisham, for those of us that aren't as clever as you? Miss Havisham is from Dickens, and I've now forgotten the book, but she's famously a jilted lover. She was left at the altar. And uh, I feel like our, our lonely soul here is um, missing the attentions of his friend uh, or their friend. Makes perfect sense now. Far too intellectual for us. Crikey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we will have that follow-up question in a minute because this unpopular opinion is from someone that George has called Lassie who says, I pick up on two shoots each week. Both are run by the same keeper with the same team of beaters and pickers up. My question and comments revolve around picking up and guests bringing their own dogs. Often discussed by my picking up colleagues are the guns who bring their dogs, sometimes a companion with dog and expected to work their dogs from the peg. When a gun by today's shooting, are they paying for a number of birds or access to the infrastructure of the shoot? Usually payment by the gun is calculated on the number of birds shot by counting the retrieved birds. So every bird that is not retrieved is not only potentially leaving a wounded bird behind, but is also an expense to the shoot owner, which soon adds up. It is beholden to any shoot to pick up all birds that are retrievable. This is undoubtedly made much more difficult with unknown dogs working, and it also takes longer between drives to make sure nothing is left behind. We always ask guns that arrive with a dog what they would like to achieve with their dog that day. Some are taking their dog for a walk. Most want to pick some birds from around their pegs, but some want to do more. The main problem that we encounter is that these dogs are of unknown quality. We have had dogs that mouth and leave birds, dogs that eat birds or even bury them, yet the owner thinks that they can do no wrong. Thank goodness this does not apply to everyone who brings a dog. We have some guest companions who enjoy the challenge of working their dogs, and and for them, we do try to include them in in our lineup if they are so inclined. We try to allocate them on area, on drives to stand where they can see their partner shooting, where they're not isolated and where they can give their dog some work. Being included as part of the team is sometimes appreciated far more than just standing with their gun all day. They enjoy the experience of working as part of our team, joining the camaraderie as well as the banter and stimulating conversation from the picking up team. It also has the advantage that we can see how their dog is working and whether we need help or sweep through at the end of the drive. Some enjoy our company so much they want to come back. So the essence of my communication is, if a gun buys a day's shooting at cost per bird, does this entitle them to work their dog? Should a dog of unknown quality be included in the picking up line? Should the guest advise the shoot beforehand that they are bringing a dog and is this okay? Wowzers. Lassie has an opinion for sure. (laughs) (laughs) But has skirted around what that opinion might actually be. I think. Uh, I think she's trying to be... She? Lassie was a girl, yeah? Uh, if you like. Yeah, I don't know, really. L- Lassie the dog was female. I, I don't know. Lassie could uh, talk, let uh, alone be a dog. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
At least they'd be able to pick up the pheasants trapped down the mine shaft, I suppose, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Can you can you imagine being able to talk to your working dog? Just pop round there, up to the corner, right at the fence, over the back, and there's just one that's in the hedge over the behind. I'm not sure about dog in the back of um, the Shooting Times. Is that still going? I can't remember the... Uh, it was a cartoon in the back of the Shooting Times. can't remember the artist, but there was always like a, a sketch in the back of the Shooting Times where... Um, Someone would, uh, it was almost like the, the dog was taking the mick out of the shooter, uh, standing there with a newspaper or whatever. Do you want me to shoot them instead and things like that? Maybe that maybe that's Lassie. <laughs> <laughs> so Lassie has definitely got her opinion. George, um, what's wh- what are you feeling about Lassie's approach to this letter and her issue? Um, I think that the, the three questions at the end um, can be summed up with some fairly straightforward answers we kind of touched on them before should the guest advise the shoot host beforehand that they're bringing a dog yes that doesn't cost anything to do it just makes everything easier all the time if you have the luxury of doing so if you're a guest of someone they might ask and then pass that on but more often than not they don't yeah which Uh, is still fine so the shoot should just expect guns to bring dogs and i think i sort of feel and you can correct me if you disagree but i sort of feel that yes if you've bought a day's shooting you are absolutely entitled to work your dog as we've covered on past pods some people buy day shooting for their dog yes exactly as a birthday present for the dog yeah um (laughs) so i think that's a given with the with the caveat as always that the dog has actually got to be reasonably you know under control and and able to do the job um should a dog of unknown quality be included in the picking up line, I think is the more challenging one because it, it, the answer is no, but that conflicts with the answer to the previous two. So um, not sure. It, the way that she positioned the picking up line was very serious and the way she described it. And I mean, like if she'd given me that speech before, I'm not sure I'd want to say yes. I'd just be like, it's okay. I'll go somewhere else. Uh, or do something else. Uh, it just seems, I mean, great if this is a sophisticated setup, run properly, lots of picking up dogs there, all doing the right thing, then it doesn't sound like it's appropriate for someone who's got a sort of half-trained dog to go and join them for the day because it's obviously clearly doesn't sit right with Lassie. That's her opinion. Alex, have you got a gun dog? Uh, no, I don't. Um uh for lots of reasons um i don't have one um yet shall we say um i haven't been so settled with work and things and home life to get a dog yet but now settled um probably will be on the cards but i won't be calling it lassie (laughs) (laughs) and um, but i mean i think we've all been on shoot days where there's a a less than perfect gun dog in the line but it, it's. I think that this, this person, Lassie, is, is starting from the right perspective, which is about ensuring that everything is picked and retrieved. And I can see how having a, a useless dog around might make that more more awkward. But should that does that trump? Does the the need to recover everything trump the the paying guns desire to bring their their dog and work it? Um, it it, it is. Well, gosh. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because you don't, I don't believe that you pay for a day shooting to to train your dog or take your dog. Definitely not. Um, you, if you are paying for shooting, then you pay for shooting. 
And surely you, if your dog was ill-behaved in whatever way or didn't work its work to pick up, you'd be embarrassed, wouldn't you, to be other things? So I think some people just don't get embarrassed and they don't care, and that's where the issue is. Oh, and that, that that's that's a different – if they don't care – or don't then that's a different issue as well, isn't it? That's being a bit more well, but uh, but also, um, <laughs> it, you should always ask if you can bring your dog, and uh, whether you're a paying guest or not. And word gets around quite quickly that that is that you know if if you're a regular, then other people will talk about <laughs> such and such as dog is is <laughs> is is pretty useless. Um, so you should always ask definitely whether you're a paying guest or not. And if they don't want you to bring your dog, then they should have, um, yeah, they should have the balls not to say, please don't bring your dog. Um, we've heard it's going to ruin the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You definitely want to avoid being the gun that's got a reputation as having a really bad dog. You might find your invitations dry up quite quickly. <laughs> Which drive is Lassie doing now? You know, and where 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 is Lassie picking up? We don't know, but but um, but agreed. Going back to one of your first points, every everything that is um, uh, hit, pricked, or or not picked up is bad form. So uh, every more dogs, the better, surely. And I've certainly been on some shoots where uh, the, the pickers up uh, will hang back if the 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 gun has a dog that is well-behaved and does do the job, they'll hang back after they've had a conversation and said, would you, would you like your dog to pick up? The pickers-up will say. And then the, the pickers-up will come in and sweep the ground afterwards. That's absolutely fine. But um, I think it, it, maybe it's down to the gun um, to, to try and work out the lassie's expectations. The bit I was confused about is where she's sort of referring to the picking-up team as opposed to just sort of a peg dog. The picking up team is is a different group than a dog on the peg. I don't think just because you've got a dog, you're no, part not of the at picking all. up team. Not at all. Um, and, and so where, where she's sort of getting a bit miffed about them doing a bad job, the dogs on the peg are very unlikely to be as good as the dogs way behind the line. Like that's a given because they'll get out a lot more. That's just something, that's the hobby of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, so... When the dogs on the peg do do a bad job, most more often than not, like we, I'm sure both all of us can relate to this. Um, the other dogs will just sweep through, and if they miss one or two, they'll get collected. But where that dog does a particularly awful job, like is doing what this person is saying here, then obviously someone needs to step in, and have a word, and say, look, "Look, hold on, this this dog's not 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 handling the game in the way that we want the game to be handled. Mm. So that's a different issue. But I'm not really sure about the whole sort of joining the picking up team type sort of comment. You know, you're, you're very entitled to have, no one's ever going to say don't bring your dog unless they literally have heard and you're in the local area. But I mean, again, mm. that's quite unlikely. It word ever gets around like that. So yeah, I just, I, I feel like, I don't know about this one. I, yeah, I kind of see what they're trying to do there though, because they're trying to make the guests, sorry, the guns, <clears throat> companion the gun's guest who's who's handling the dog feel like part of the team and i think it's quite a noble sentiment but i think that yeah you're right there needs to be a distinction between peg dogs that are picking up around the peg and maybe doing you know the odd retrieve in slightly more challenging circumstances and the picking up team whose job is to sweep up after the gun's dogs have have done their bit and i think you are blurring the lines there with the 
as it were, professionals and the, the amateurs. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you were going to put someone in a role in a football team and you, they, you'd no idea if they were any good or not, you'd make sure that someone around them was more than good enough to pick up for their mistake. Mm. <laughs> uh, so I think the same thing applies here. Like, If you just put them there, then someone's got to have an eye on them and make sure they send their dogs through when that person just doesn't mm. do the job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Okay, so what? Um, where are we coming down then? Are we coming down on the, the side of unpopular opinion here or popular opinion or...? I sort of lost where the opinion was. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I, I think the tone of her message feels like she's gone a bit too far with this one and needs to reel back a little bit. That's my Maybe ask her to write in again and just, 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 just... Find find down what you want us to what you want us to say, <laughs> <laughs> and that email address is pod at gunsonpegs.com. Right, let's move on then. Um, we don't know is the answer. We're not sure. Very helpful as always. Um, right, so on to Timbuk two, Timbuk three. Alex, this is a segment uh, where we ask our listeners to write in and let us know about drives that they know that have got particularly good names. And this one comes from Hagrid, who says, I would like to contribute a drive name from a local shoot that I used to occasionally do a bit of beating on. The drive was a tangled dell of thorn and bramble pushed into a strip of old conifers. Unfortunately, the conifer belt and many other woods on this small shoot were flattened by Storm Arwen and have been cleared of timber. So technically speaking, it could be classed as a forgotten drive as well. The name of the drive, the hairy hole. <laughs> it's not going to go down as one of those drives that gets talked about for year for years to come, is it? It's not romantic. <laughs> it hasn't. It hasn't got the feeling of excitement attached to it. Does yeah, it? I was. I was number five on the hairy hole once. <laughs> exactly. You were back gunning on the hairy yeah. hole. <laughs> Christ, I'm cutting that bit. Yeah. <laughs> Talking to a picker-up team, I think I've got two down at the hairy hole. <laughs> this week. Alex, do you? Um, we ask everybody this. Do you know of any uh, any shot of any on any drives that have got particularly creative names or ones that stick in the mind for you? There's a local one uh, to me where I've shot uh, many a time on, which is quite pleasant, and it's it's it, it's it's not a funny one. Um, it's uh, it, it's a drive called the Worm, and the previous owner was um, very much into his flora and fauna, and and he created in the bottom of this valley beetle banks, um, and they were uh, built up in the bottom of the valley in the in an S sort of swale sort of worm style going down through the valley and and it created a lot of butterflies and in and it was planted uh for, with the wildflowers and bits and pieces and in the spring and summer it was absolutely divine to look at because the amount of butterflies and insects and things that were there for um wildlife was was phenomenal but of course in the winter it just looked like a a grassy mound <laughs> to be fair but um yeah it was called the worm and um <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, that's it yeah yeah that's a I great like that. one really nice one very good well i like that submission keep them coming in please i really i'm really enjoying these i've got a couple more lined up but the, the more the merrier 
I'm really pleased with how this feature's going. It's only the second one we've had, Alex, and um, whenever we introduce a new feature, we're never quite sure whether anybody's going to be excited by it. But um, there's, a, there's a few good ones rolling in, so it seems to be working. You'll be pleased to hear we don't need to ask you about Lassie and Hagrid. <laughs> yeah, I think they were self-explanatory, weren't they? Right, so Hagrid and Lassie and Miss Havisham, and now you, Alex, are the newest members of the Most Noble Order of the Garters and will very soon be in receipt of a set of the much-coveted Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters. If you too have got a shooting confession quandary or a query that you'd like us and our guests to help you with, or if you've got an unpopular opinion to share, or if you'd like to tell us about a drive with a particularly good name and you would like a set of garters, drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. So Alex, gunsmithing, we lined up some questions. We've been asking people what they would ask you. Uh, so we've definitely got a few of these to bring you in a minute. But but so you mentioned at the start, you've got all this experience, which we've massively underestimated. Uh, <laughs> what, what was your route into gunsmithing in the first place? Well, um, I was very much into hands-on engineering and things at school. Um, and um, did lots of sort of bits and pieces in the metal workshop at school. But actually, when I left school, I studied for two years at Sparshot University to become a gamekeeper. Um, doing that, I mean, I mean, it was it was great. Um, but certainly saw myself just still inclining to be actually repairing guns and having you know sort of guns and bits and pieces. Uh, were, were more interest to me um and obviously in inside life as well rather than outside life you know the the work of a gamekeeper is a lot harder than the one of a gunsmith in so many different ways um the inside life for me is probably a little bit more sort of appealing but anyway um i was uh, i was lucky enough to be shooting uh with uh the old firm's uh managing director uh mr laurie hart and um he mentioned that he was looking for an apprentice, an apprentice gun maker. And um, I thought, yeah, well, that, that, that is exactly what I want to do. And I um, met him for a preliminary interview and then had an interview. Um, and finally, long story short, I got the job. Um, a six-year apprenticeship, all in-house, all in-house. It was a very, very old school style apprenticeship. Um, but it stood me in some real good stead for the future. Not only was I at the bench um, throughout uh, learning from my master, uh, Mr. Peter Burden, but also we had a shop uh, right at the front of the, of, of the gunsmith or the workshop, and we were buying and selling in there. We were selling Schofel Barber and bits and pieces, a proper shop, a very traditional shop. And also we were selling guns as well. And and as soon as the doorbell went, I used to go down and almost be front of house as well. So that stood me in good stead uh, throughout my career with that. And uh, I did that for uh, uh, 17 years. <laughs> and then they actually um, <laughs> they, they uh, decided to retire. Um, and then um, they, uh, they, they relinquished the shop. And I left on a Friday working for B Chaplin and moved in on a Monday. Um, and all of it was mine. Alex Smith Guns. Well done. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. You're a specialist in old English guns. And I suppose that's partly down to the part of the country that we're in, perhaps. But uh, how have you seen that market changing over time? How, is, how have things changed since you first took up your apprenticeship in that regard? 
it it well it certainly has changed in so many ways um the the demise of the side by side in the shooting field um really really is apparent um for uh whatever reason i don't know but i think it, it to get started that there's certainly an old generation um that were traditionally using side by sides in in the field and that generation are diminishing they're uh either giving up shooting uh because they're unsteady on their feet what for whatever reason possibly they're even dying and the side by side is 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 like i say for whatever reason really is just diminishing in numbers the je ne sais quoi of a side by side in the field is being lost what do you think that means for you and your colleagues in your profession then um I wouldn't say it's a complete ticking time bomb for us to, to but well, that's a trick. It's a very tricky question because we we don't know where the future is going to go. We certainly don't know where the future is going to go with game shooting in general, and whether that's going to change with guns. Of course, it will. But how much for the cyber side? Um, if we can, I'd quite like to say that, and maybe this is a question to you guys: Why do we try and beat ourselves? with height when it comes to game birds when we can do something much easier by trying to beat ourselves with the gun we use in what i mean by that is um it's it some people find it a lot easier to use with an over and under some people find it fine and easy myself included to shoot game with a side by side well yeah i think i completely agree you know if you if you find that that shooting is becoming too easy for you instead of trying to find the highest possible bird simply change your gun to one that you find harder to shoot and you've sort of you've refreshed the challenge for yourself haven't you um i've got an interesting statistic though for you alex and and um this comes from from the game shooting census that we do every year which is that actually for the last five years the number of people reporting themselves as using a side-by-side as their regular game gun has actually been increasing that is fant- that is a fantastic statistic that's great how does that compare to the amount of people that are coming into shooting uh it's not well i haven't done that maths actually but uh, i know well i i think that looking at some other things i'd say that's static uh from the number of right. people coming in going out and so on uh over the last few years certainly it's just some data we're looking at so i think that therefore that figure is a true figure it's increasing mm. yeah Interesting. So, so sometimes the analogy I use is is you can have an Aston Martin DB5, which is a completely handmade car for X amount of money. You're not going to use this as your daily car. Of course you're not. But it's nice to have, isn't it? And when you do take it out to use, it's a pleasure to drive. You can buy a handmade fine English shotgun for the same price that you're buying a brand new Beretta and surely you're going to get much more pleasure out of that. You're not going to be able to go as fast, and you might not be able to shoot as accurately, but you're going to have such pleasure using it. it but that's the same as a classic classic car versus fast car market. I'm with you in that the classic car sounds lovely. I'd also like the modern fast one for certain scenarios, uh, <clears throat> but I'd probably prefer to take the classic one out more often than not. Um, and I think that that applies to people's shotguns. But I, I, I was really intrigued by the way you asked that earlier question about why is it people feel the need to constantly sort of get the better and better bit of kit 
versus just will just drop down to a 20 ball or 28 ball or whatever. Um, I, it, it made me think about other walks of life. And actually, the engineering part is part of this sort of human bettering point. So even if you constantly work on the engineering of the gun and the cartridge and all the other things, you're, you're basically doing the furthest thing that man is capable of doing. And so I think that somewhere weird in the human mind, that becomes more fun than just going, well, how many flies can you shoot in an elastic band? Well, obviously, if I get a tennis racket, I'll kill more of them. But, you know, so people, I, I just think they keep pushing themselves no matter what. I just think that's human greed or whatever mm. you want to call it. I, I, I possibly think it's greed um, and, and, and possibly people people because that because more and more people buy shooting they want to get their bang for buck they want to get their value for money and if i can you know and, and, and i've seen some people and heard of some people actually writing down well i've actually shot five on that drive but i shot 10 on that drive so i've got my money's worth already and and that that that's not yes that's not the way i stand and think but but modern guns don't shoot any better or kill any better than fine english shotguns you can shoot more with a, a modern gun i reckon why why you could it, it well okay my henry atkin breaks every four or five days shooting for, for one but that's not the reason i think certainly if you're going to hire birds you'll 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 have a cartridge that's more suitable for it when you're on higher birds and you will be able to put more in the air and it will have more impact at whatever distance um i just I don't know. I shoot my Rizzini on some high pheasants, and it's it's better than my Atkin. But I love swinging the Atkin on, uh, you know, on partridges, grouse, and the sort of more you know traditional sort of syndicate shoot type thing. Um, that's that, that's the way I see it. And I, I use both regularly. But but you're you're saying your 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 Rizzini kills higher birds better. I mean, obviously the the human error is the biggest variation in that. But I'm saying I can put bigger cartridges through it. And that's what kills taller birds. It helps, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm enjoying this. If I've got, uh, but yeah, if you've got a, a bigger cartridge that's appropriate for that gun on a higher bird, it would be better than my side by side lighter Atkin, which struggles to take it as well as it not being that comfortable to shoot with anything more than thirty gram. Right, and 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 so therefore it's better for the scenario i'm not sure specifically whether physically it's better but it i will shoot better with it on that on that type of shoot without going into a, a whole new different okay you carry on with that Chris. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I mean alex it seems to me that you're you're obviously very passionate about um about making sure that these old english guns and, the, and the, the traditional way of doing things um continues and actually one of the, the questions that we've had from our listeners i think is is quite a good one in this regard because obviously a lot of these older guns are inherited um so this person asked um i want my son or my daughter to be able to use my father's old gun but the stock is too long is it simply a question of waiting for my child to grow so that it fits or you know what can you do there um uh, without obviously permanently damage you know ruining the gun you'd probably don't want to cut the stock on a beautiful holland for example well i mean uh, getting a good gun fit um is obviously paramount to whether it's just cutting it down and 
and before you even sort of attack the stock, shall we say, getting a good quality gun fit from a good quality gun instructor and an instructor that can actually use and fit a side by side. Mm. Um, you know, that, again, that, that, you know, probably obviously one of Chris's friends that only wants to use an over and under <laughs> on tall birds, but um, it's very hard to actually find an instructor that can use and instruct with a side-by-side. You know, you go to an a um, an, an introductory lesson, um, even at Holland's or, you know, West London or whatever, whatever, um, wherever, and the first thing they're going to shove into your hands is an over and under. Um, you know, you go back 40 years and it would have been a side-by-side. Um, you know, the, the likes of Ken Davis and, and you know, and, and David Olive from back around our way would have been a a side by side and and uh, it it is an art of gun fitting and um without going down another rabbit hole of opening up a lot of things um it's very hard to do so with so with this person if if they've got an inherited gun could you just remove the stock keep that for later in life or the original stock at least for the gun just keep it to one side and have a new stock made still being balanced yes of course yeah absolutely so that's, that's absolutely. what this person yeah, could yeah. do but i mean what 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 sort of money would you be looking at to do that take the analogy of, of a holland and holland royal um whether it's an assisted open or or not um just a standard sort of holland side lock um we'd be probably looking around about five and a half thousand plus the vat okay. For a, for a single gun but obviously um if 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 the, the 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 father really wants him to to shoot with a gun we can cut it down just cut it off um and uh, reshape the back end checker it not a problem it's it's a common thing to do common thing to do uh, and and assume it presumably a lot cheaper massively massively a lot cheaper but but also um you know we we were a lot shorter when this holland was if we're using the holland um, if when the holland was made um, people were shorter anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, your average stock length might have been about fourteen and a quarter, fourteen and a half ish, give or take. So, so the chances of it needing any shorter than that, he probably should just be waiting a little bit yeah. longer anyway. You know, there's a there's a growth spurt that we all know about in between, sort of, you know, thirteen and sixteen, sort of thing. Just wait. Just hold your have horses. Some, have something as an interim, yeah. and then have it when you're eighteen, twenty-one, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See if you really want to shoot with a side by side again. Buy an AYA. Yeah. Job done. So, you know. um, another question here. Uh, someone says, "I've got an, an old English gun that probably needs, probably needs. I'm coming back to that one. Probably needs new barrels for steel. What would you suggest?" Ah, can I just add here? And actually, George, didn't we get you on this the other day? Uh, there's a, I think there's a lot of people that don't realise their gun will take standard steel. Um, post-1954, I think, by and large, nearly all of them will take standard steel, obviously check first. Um, so, yeah, George, wasn't it Edward King was looking well, at yours so, and suddenly realised so it could do that? When when the, 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 the announcement about the phase-out of lead was first made, I thought, heck, I'd better look and see what chokes my gun's got in it. Because I'd never... Even can never even thought about it up until that point. Just um, for everyone's benefit, why is it you needed to do that? Well, because you're only supposed to put steel through half choke or less to avoid bulging the barrels. Standard, st standard steel. 
standard steel, yes. So I, I looked at all the markings and I Googled what the markings might mean and I couldn't find anything anywhere that told me anything reliable. All the proof marks and what have you were very confusing. So I then emailed AYA with the serial number and they came back and told me it had quarter and full. However, when we were shooting with Edward King um, in the last week of the season, he had a look at it. and went, Who imports, who imports AYA, AYA to the UK? He had a look at it and went, no, 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 those, those marks mean it's quarter and half. So he's now taken it away to just measure everything and uh, confirm one way or the other. Um, Qu- quarter and full would be quite an unusual barrel combo on a fixed choke gun, wouldn't it? Not necessarily, certainly in the English gun world. I mean, back again, back back, back early on, um, and I'm sure there are certainly some more more um, knowledgeable people in the gun world that will understand this or, or back me up or even contradict me that that they only believed really in in two chokes, and that was possibly improved and a quarter and full, and that was it. Um, and and choke is measured from the bore size from the bore down to the end of the barrel. So you take it from the bore and then you count down in increments of a thousandth of an inch and down to when the, 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 at the end of the bore, at the end of the, the barrel, shall we say. And that is reduced in thousandths of an inch. And if it is 20 thousandths of an inch or more, it is tighter than half choke. So the crucial figure is 20. So if it's 25, 30, 40, 40 thousandths of an inch from the bore in constriction, it is full right. choke. Gotcha. So one of these little choke measurers you can buy doesn't really tell you much, but it may, I assume it, it must tell you something because it's going to tell you <laughs> loosely on the scale where it is, but it's not going to tell you everything. Um, it's, it's, it's a rough guide, but I wouldn't Fine. trust it. Cool. Okay, so, so back to this question then. Um, old english gun want to use steel what's the process that you would advise this person to go through in terms of making sure that their gun can take it well um it certainly is to do with uh the barrels obviously and the chamber length the internal condition of the barrels and it's when well, make sure it's obviously still in proof and then to measure the chokes if the choke is tighter than half choke, choke can be removed for you and able to take standard steel. What I would like to ask the question is, is uh, Chris, you mentioned the date of 1954. I'd like to know where that date came from, because when we were first um, told we couldn't use lead on uh, wildfowl, there was no mention of that date. Um, on English guns to shoot steel. Uh, there was no mention of anything like that. And no one has ever worried about using steel through English guns back then. It's just now that we've it's come into fruition. So, yeah, I mean, obviously I've read, in that, read that date in a lot of the documents given out by assuming the two proof houses, which don't seem to agree on everything, which yeah. is another stupid scenario. The, the point is that we've got to be careful. Exactly. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. Obviously, the first thing to do, just take it to someone and ask. It's uh, like we're going to come on to the – there's another question in here about getting a gun serviced anyway. So when you do that, ask the question and you'll be fine. In this scenario, when yeah. – so are you saying that if I have like a 19 
20 gun that's still got the barrels on it. Let's assume that they are still thick enough and therefore improve and so on. What, even if the choke is too tight, what can you do? Are you saying there's nothing you can do, replace the barrels, or can you sleeve them? Or can you, what are the options? Not at all. I am saying that um, what you can do is, let's take, for instance, is a standard Webley and Scott 700 um, with a quarter and full choke, which is a lot of them are. So we could remove the full choke down to half choke and you'll be fine. Tickety-boo, on your way. So it's not about the makeup of anything in the barrels. It's just choking and the thickness like i said earlier on as long as the barrels and the gun are in good quality working order i believe removing it to half choke is your best so, and only option you can of course have it rebarreled at vast expense you can indeed have it sleeved again at vast expense what, what's sleeving costing uh sleeving uh costing is probably about two and a half three thousand mm. pounds on a gun that is nowadays worth 500, Wait. 700 pounds, if we take my analogy of uh, Webley and Scott. Oh, yeah, sure. If you're doing it on that. I mean, if, you, if you're doing it on great-great-grandfather's old Purdy and you want to keep using it, whatever. If you want to keep using it to shoot non-toxic shot, when the, where, to make it future-proof, use bismuth. Yeah. Mm, yeah. My, my huge analogy on bismuth is... You go on a day shooting, so let's say it's a 100-bird shoot, maybe a 200-bird shoot. How many cartridges are you going to use? 150? Well, let's say that's, that's 150 pounds worth of bismuth. Give or take. Give or take. Well, you've taken your other half out for a meal. That's cost you 150 pounds. You've filled your Range Rover up, Chris, with fuel. <laughs> that's, uh, that's 150 pounds. It's the, it, 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 cartridges, even if they're bismuth, are still the cheapest part of the day sport. Um, fine. There, uh, there's something interesting. So, so the, the 1954 thing that they're probably alluding to is that they didn't, at that point, check at different pressures or at a certain level where maybe they just can't be sure is what you're saying. So it would just need checking. So if you were to check it, you'd be able to say, barrel thickness is fine, choke's okay, you're fine. That's yeah. what you're saying. Yes, I'm sure I'm right. I'm sure I'm wrong. There are someone out there with a much more... If yeah. you are, they'll yeah, definitely fine. tell okay. us. No, I, that, <laughs> oh, good. I hope so. <laughs> you can write to me at <laughs> pod at guntonpegs.com. We'll just, we'll just put the address in. It's more fun. That's fine. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Hate mail. Can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, I mean, but if I go back to bismuth, bismuth is, is, a, is a far better performing, a closer to lead than steel ever will be. Yeah. And I am putting that out there, and I don't care what anyone no, you, you, says. You're absolutely right. The periodic table suggests it. A lot of my old customers will say, I tried bismuth back in the day when they first had to for the foreshore shooting and bits and pieces, and they said it's rubbish. I said, yes, it may well be, but have you tried steel? <laughs> I mean, I used bismuth on that podcast shoot day we had, Chris, as, uh, as um, everybody took great delight in um, calling me a millionaire. And, you know, it was effectively a 150-bird day that we were shooting. I fired two boxes of cartridges, which is, you know, nothing in the grand scheme of it. And, you know, they were fantastic as well. You aren't really noticing. This is the thing, yeah. But uh, the whole concept of business crap steals crap. Like, it takes someone to really know 
the vast majority of people that go shooting, certainly that I've seen, just you just don't know. And and also you have to be on a certain type of shoot as well where you're really going to get it tested. Agreed. Agreed. You're dead right there. You're dead right. Um, I've been using steel for the last for the last few years now. And um, yeah, basically bugger all difference. Um, so I've got another another listener question, Alex, um, which uh, is an interesting one, I think. And they said, I've got a nice gun, but the woodwork isn't the prettiest. Is there anything I can do at home to make it a bit smarter? And then the follow-up question, what would you do if I brought it in? <laughs> <laughs> I've had this a lot. Oh, I had a go at tidying the stock up at home, but it's gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> By all means, have a go at home. Absolutely fine. Depends on what went wrong, um, how bad it's gone, and things like that. Yeah, uh, uh, Berettas, for instance, they, they went through a stage of putting a lacquer on the outside of the stock, and that's great. That lacquer is phenomenal. It's hard-wearing, it's waterproof, and it's, it's great until you dink it. As soon as you dink it, you break the surface of the lacquer and then you almost have to strip the whole lacquer off, restart it, or you can patch it. Patching it, you're always going to see. Um, so unless you're, unless you're a French polisher as your profession, um, don't touch the stock. <laughs> <laughs> um, fair enough. Uh, Farron and Bull don't do a stock paint, so don't try that. No, they don't. Uh, no, do no, no. But... <laughs> Right. So, and if you bring it in, are you going to stick a lacquer on? Is that what people ask you to do, or do you just? We we do it at uh, a, a, a vast range of different styles of finish, and there, there's guys out there. I can't quite remember his name, but I've seen him on on Instagram and things. Who the the, the finish that he comes up with is phenomenal. It's absolutely like a mirror gloss, high high shine finish, and that's fantastic. Um, that's really good, um, but a little bit impractical, if you ask me. Um, the, the the true traditional French polish deep finish, where you bring out the grain and the depth of colour that you can see, you almost look into it, and you can see different colours, and and it almost almost looks almost three D um, with different depths of of, of grain and things. But back in the day, I mean, it's it, 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 it's come round that um, the first thing we look at is the wood. Yeah, we go along a rack of guns and go, "Oh, that's a nice piece of wood. What's the gun? <laughs> wow, that's a lovely piece of wood. What's the gun? Well, actually, again, you know, in the in in the height of English guns, it was merely just the way of holding the gun. You know, some of those very old purdies and things, you know, it was the straighter the grain, the better. Better because it was stronger. You know, a lot of, a lot of the old rifles, the double rifles, you know, the express rifles had to have straight grain. Less figure means a stronger stock. And we're, yeah. we're seeing that a lot with the the american uh the american fire walnuts on the uh, on the brownings and the marukus they won't admit it but they snap stocks a maruku grade 5 is going to break interesting and so uh, for example you know More the, hate mail <laughs> <laughs> the, the so the, the stock on on my aya you know it's not highly figured it's not particularly tight grain nothing like that is there you're in terms of 
um, jazzing it up. You're you are limited to what you can achieve by the the wood that you're working with in the first place, I guess. Yeah, of course. I mean, you can't you you can't add figure in unless you want to paint it. We don't condone that type of thing. Um, I can do it for you. Um, I'm sure I can go down the local nursery school and ask someone to paint it for you, but but it it won't add anything to you, and um, it might make you feel a bit better by looking at it when you've got nothing to shoot at. But it's not going to no waste of time. We can add color. Color is a different thing, um, and sometimes adding a bit of color gives a little bit more depth into the grain. Um, but uh, anything other than that, just crack on. There's a question here which really resonated with me. Just it's a quick one. People talk about snap caps. When should they be used and how important are they? Because I really feel like snap caps is something people used to talk about. What's your opinion? Um, we use snap caps in the workshop, obviously, for testing um, and making sure the ejectors are in time. And one should, always, with an English gun, you should release the strikers onto something whether that's a snap cap or a striker block. And if you're putting the gun in at the end of like the season for a while, should you release the tension on a snap cap, leave the snap caps in with the triggers basically pulled without recocking it? No, not at all. There is no, there is no, there is no benefit from releasing springs um, on, a, on a snap cap on an English gun. Let me, a second analogy again is, is the fact on your, on your, your car, you don't release the springs on your car when you put it up on blocks, for instance, every night. Why should you do it with a um, with a gun? F- fine. Um, I mean, so so why is it people need snap caps or they just don't? Is what you're saying? Unless you're test testing striking timers. <laughs> Unless you're testing again, there's a great film um, called uh, The Shooting Party, and there's a scene in there where. There is, I can't remember his name, but there's a a gentleman in the gun room on this film and he is practicing pulling the trigger and mounting the gun. And as he mounts, he's pulling the trigger. And that is when you would uh, use snap caps and he uses snap caps in the film. Fine. All right, let's solve that one. They're basically unnecessary. Completely unnecessary unless you want to practice pulling the trigger. Fine. Cool. Um, uh, Going back to to what we were talking about, about... um stocks and and painting them and so on somebody's asked have you ever been asked to do something to someone's gun that you've refused to do for reasons of taste reasons of taste no (laughs) um (laughs) from from the expression on my face and questioning they'll understand that i don't want to do it (laughs) but um for taste wise um (laughs) um generally um I won't do something if it is unsafe, and I would advise if the if it is unsafe to do um for whatever reason um like removing or welding up the safety catch, for instance, so the safety catch doesn't engage or work for instance i I've been asked oh. to do that before um and that just doesn't work taking trigger pulls down to uh, uh one and a half pounds for instance. Um, because he he used the, he wanted as soon as it hit his shoulder he wanted the gun to go off. Uh, well, that's just unsafe. Um, so yeah. I, I I I don't take trigger pulls down to what I believe is an unsafe um, poundage. 
So we've got two more questions, and I, I definitely will get through them because it's great having these. Uh, so someone says, I've heard that keeping a gun in the cabinet with a stock down can cause issues. Uh, does it matter which way up I store my gun? I've heard this too in relation to oil. Is there anything in this? Yeah, th- there is There is something into that. Yeah, there is. Um, for a long period of time, say, for instance, it's your it's it's the 1st of February and you're putting it away until you're shooting one of those dreaded simulated days um and (laughs) and you you you, you're not going to use it until then yes of course put it barrels down definitely um because you're chucking spraying a bit of oil down the barrel usually people spray a bit of oil at the end of the season down the barrel or even during the season and what uh, is is it therefore that that oil can make its way into stock and assuming I'm, i'm guessing here oil in stock creates weakness correct it does yeah it does indeed yeah um over obviously over a long period of time um it's not going to happen overnight um yeah yes you 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 really must you really must but then again there's no reason to actually store your gun with that amount of oil in it inside the barrels or outside as long as your gun cabinet is clean dry um, it, it, you don't need to store that much oil in it. It's quite literally when you, the only thing that's going to get straight into the stock is when you spray with your, your spray oil into the striker holes, for instance, or smother it with oil on the outside. You know, no need to do that. Perfect. Very helpful, this. Right, last question, George. Yeah, so um, again, another listener question. So um, from a gunsmith's point of view, i.e. the quality of the craftsmanship, if money was no object, which gun should I be buying? <laughs> that that's a personal choice question, isn't it? Okay, which gun would you buy? I'd buy a boss side by side. How come? Oh, sorry, I'd buy another boss <laughs> side by side, and I'd buy another boss over and under. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, what what's your is any particular reasoning? Um, the quality and craftsmanship of boss still is second to none it is still english gun it is still they 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 make so few that they can now they can still produce some of the best guns only period done done yeah right well really helpful this has been been really interesting get a whole load of issues sorted i did say at the start we would be asking all the questions that no you don't want anyone to come in stand there asking you so we just wasted your time now and we'll put it out to everyone kill all the birds with one stone there not, not at all i mean you've been you've been very tame in fact yeah, yeah. <laughs> good well um as you probably heard the way that we finish these pods off is with desert island shooting uh so this is the scenario where the extinction level asteroid hits tomorrow your affairs are in order loved ones and enemies reconciled dogs fed tomatoes watered your last day begins how i need to try and invent and find a time machine ah we've got one <laughs> yeah it's it's fully branded as well so don't worry i would um love love to go back to rippon's days and shoot some of those historical places um and it would be very close to home um on lord rank's um estate uh which is at sutton scotney and um all around the english partridge of the uh the big huge hedges that where the english partridge would be driven for miles and they would 
come over as coveys and starburst in front of you in the traditional English way. Um, double guns um, with gentlemen, um, followed by um, definitely breaking for lunch. Definitely. I'm a strong believer in having a lunch in the field under um, on, a, on a lovely September day under canvas, um, an open safari-style tent um, with uh, good quality wine, um, obviously cigars, and then finishing um, with a penultimate drive. Um, phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. Good days. with uh, So here's a fun fact for you, and you might know this already, actually, Alex, but my dad's 20-bore is labelled number three, and it was one of four that were owned by Lord Rank. Wow. That's that's fantastic. What what cigar are you having for the day? Um, I've got a Partagas uh, D4. But the, on that day, you're going back in time. Ah. You're taking whichever one you want. Do you know what? Um, do you know why I would smoke that still? Because it's a cigar I like. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a pretentious. No, sure. Yeah. Just, just in case you and had one. I love those cigars. They are a good everyday cigar. It's not my morning cigar, but that is a good everyday cigar. And yeah. would you be taking anyone in particular with you on this day? Who, who are the other gents on your gentleman's day? Oh, I've got some good friends that would probably want to join me. I'm not sure I'd want them to join me because they're too good a shots compared to I. So um, I would certainly take someone that um, taught me to shoot um, and um, a chap called Nick Silk. Um, he's, uh, he taught me a lot and um, he's a fine pigeon shot as well. I would love to stand as well with Lord Rippon, um, possibly not shoot next to him because I'm not sure I'd get much sport. But um, I'd love to see him shoot or have seen him shoot. I think on the day also, possibly Churchill, of course, uh, just to hear some of his stories from early days. And then um, uh, Jim Corbett. Ah. Yeah, I think uh, he's probably trumps a lot of of people with some stories of man-eating tigers and things like that. Yeah, no, that would be cool. That's a very good one. That's got many of many very good ingredients to that day, I think. Mm. Yeah, it could go on and on. It'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Gosh, but I, I, I'm not. I'm. I, I, I don't think I'd be able to invite Lassie along, um, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> Lassie and the team is just who you need there to get them all collected. So great. Well, Alex, thank you ever so much for for taking the time and thanks for joining us. No, not at all. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, really good of you, Alex. Thank you. Not at all. Thank you. Right. So before we go, all that remains for me to say is there's a final reminder that you can get your hands on a pair of the very exclusive Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters by sending us your shooting dilemmas or your unpopular opinions or sharing a drive with a particularly good name. Drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. And if we read it out in the next episode, or any future episodes, we'll send you some garters. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. But until then, thanks very much for listening, and goodbye. Thanks for listening all the way to the end of the Guns on Pegs podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please do go and leave a review, hit that follow button, and of course, tell all your friends. See you next time.